Hey, welcome to the Morning Mic Check. I'm Pat Brown here with Mike Metzger. Mike and I have known each other for a while now. I first met him around 2010, and he's become one of the key mentors in my life. Over the years, we've had countless conversations, and in almost every one, I've walked away having discovered something new. Mike has this unique ability where he can reframe a conversation, and you begin to discover a deeper reality around you. It's a bit like Alice tumbling down the rabbit hole. I'm releasing these conversations as an invitation to follow me as I go down that rabbit hole. Good morning, Mike. Good morning. How are you this fine morning? Good. We're back in the podcast saddle. We are. Yeah, it's been a couple of weeks, but yeah. glad to be back. Yeah. Well, this morning, this morning, I don't know if you heard that, but this morning. We're, I we're did talking. hear it. I'm wondering, what are you <laughs> drinking this morning? Add a little something to the coffee today. There you go. I'd like to talk about education. Uh, you know, sometimes our conversations go in the realm of personal work and kids and, uh, my kids are sort of approaching that school age. So we have a lot of decisions coming up on where are they going? They doing public school or they doing private or they doing Christian home, all those things. And, um, I'd, I'd like to, to get some advice from you in terms of thinking about cultural capital. Uh, that's something that, you know, I'm taking seriously, but I also want to set my kids up well for, and schooling could be a great way to do that. I mean, who who they rub shoulders with uh, could very very well set them up for success twenty years from now, ten years from now, whatever. So, mm-hmm. thinking about that, um, just kind of general advice. But I'd like to step back a little bit first and put a little reminder for listeners if if you're hearing this and and you're not you haven't you haven't spent the the hours listening to our podcast or you're not as familiar when, when Mike and I do talk about cultural capital, um, it is, it is not in the the vein of, we believe cultural capital is important for Christians to gain power and make America a Christian nation again. Um, it, I think it's helpful to talk about our, our approach to cultural capital is actually, uh, and Mike, correct me if I speak poorly here, but is, isn't, a fulfillment or, or a living out of God's call to have dominion and to love our neighbor. And so if we're going to take yeah. seriously loving our neighbor well, then as a believer in Christ, uh, it is important that I have the cultural gravitas to be able to make subtle or significant cultural change that will help my neighbor and give them a better life. Um, and hopefully I have wisdom the spiritual and, and physical on, on the earth here uh, and, and mentors to help me do that. But the the hope is to love my neighbor that may or may not result in Christian based things or laws of the land. Um, but that's not the intent. Mike, would you say that's a good clarifier? Yeah, I think that's um, a real good one. And, and a good example for uh, Kathy and I would be with the uh, onset of the pandemic, the most vulnerable communities, were generally Hispanic. And so in putting together a pop-up pantry was a way to love our neighbor, but it also reminded us that um, the reason that you didn't have a lot of uh, whites coming through was they had uh, access, they had enough cultural capital to have access to financial capital and what have you. They could, uh, they were, were what's called resilient. And uh, vulnerable communities, 
are not resilient. So if your work was primarily say in cleaning homes and you couldn't go into homes, all of a sudden your business, you're operating out of the back of your car, you don't have a business. And so uh, cultural capital is, you can, without it, you can love individuals or you could do this pop-up pantry. And the reason I'm going to some lengths on this is that at its height, it required over 75 people every Saturday morning. Well, guess what happens over a year? Yeah. You just wear out volunteers. It's called volunteer, yeah. volunteer fatigue. And that's because uh, you are really, um, you are drawing down on their goodwill capital. Especially on, on a, a freaking cold morning or a sweltering hot, hot Saturday <laughs> yeah. morning. And so, uh, you know, people are people. That's human nature. It doesn't make them bad. But they just get to a point where you have volunteer fatigue. And, and um, it's a lot like you built a bridge without proper capital and the metal. Yeah, there's fatigue and eventually the bridge collapses. Now, the pop-up pantry didn't collapse. But it had to either scale up systems, which means it had to have the capital, had to have people with the cultural capital to go to the resources, the people who have the resources, the institutions, and be able to, um, these institutions, we feel like it was a good faith investment, or you wouldn't. So again, you can love your neighbor by just taking a, they move in, uh, take some brownies next door. But if you look at uh, systems, and people who are vulnerable, it takes more than just relational capital and goodwill. You have to have some cultural capital. Well said, well said. So in, in thinking, you know, when I, I was introduced to a lot of things that, that you have been talking about and cultural capital and the cultural mandate, I realized very quickly I had little to none. And so that's, that's kind of the spark for this conversation is let's fast forward. Um, thinking how old my kids are 15 years from now, mm-hmm. you know, when, when, Possibly, hopefully, they uh, they are, f- are following the Lord, and they they see this and and kind of catch the the vision for it, hear the call. Um, they want to take this seriously. They are not starting out at zero. Um, they are looking to their left and the right, going, "Oh wow, I, I actually already have a decent amount of cultural capital to work with." Um, that that's the spark for this, and so yeah, just kind of diving in when it comes to education, uh, mm-hmm. particularly as a tech worker. I mean, there's an extreme to this, which is tech workers can live just about anywhere across the globe today. And so um, there is an extreme notion of really geolocating yourself in a position that is um, very valuable when it comes to cultural capital, but even more subtle, less extreme ways, which is simply in our area. uh, So we're, we're in Baltimore County, the schooling is not the best in terms of public schools. There are a lot of private schools around, um, very uh, well-known kind of higher-end private schools. And then there are also, of course, Christian private schools. Um, and then you have homeschooling options. So a lot of options, just very frankly, here. Mm-hmm. Curious, yeah, just open door for you. What would be your advice in, in considering that? Um, you know, for me personally, sure, but also to to others that are listening to this and maybe approaching that or thinking that or maybe have younger kids that are, are taking this seriously and want to set them up well. Mm-hmm. 
Good questions, plural. Always. Uh, I never hit yeah. you with the single, you know? <laughs> I, well, we ought to put a baseline here that, uh, first of all, as you said, there are many good options. So there isn't a single answer. There isn't a right yeah. answer. There might even, not even be a best answer. Um, but we are in, um, um, I would say, a, a peculiar time in history. So let's frame it that way. Uh, part of the reason you have these options is the uh, public school system is uh, failing in many regards. Um, and that's worth, if you're a Christian, uh, getting some idea of why. Yeah. And, and so therefore it's not a, um, we are opposed to public school education. Um, and I would also add, um, well before they're 15 years old, you can begin to cultivate some of this just in casual conversations. So I'll tell you a quick one and then we'll get into it. So one of our uh, grandkids, um, leave her name out of it, but she came over the other night to say, hey, Poppy, can we watch a few minutes of Pinkalicious? And uh, one of my favorite shows. Not I was going to say, she was watching your show in that situation, right? Yeah, she came in and caught me watching Pinkalicious. <laughs> I give Pinkalicious credit. It's like Bluey. They're short, and um, uh, not short people. They're short uh, episodes. And so the second one was uh, the little girl moves in across the street, and Pinkalicious and her good friend run over to meet him. And um, you know, it's two men are helping unloading the moving van, and uh, one looks at the other and says, "This is my husband, Bob, or something like that." And my um, granddaughter goes, "What?" So that was just a moment to say, uh, well, you know, that's that's not how uh, God tells us that marriage is to be. It's to be between a man and a woman. And of course, see, if that's because she's eight. The moment is now passed, so it's no longer a teaching moment. <laughs> Worst thing Christians do is they keep talking about it. This thing's moved on to, you know, they're, now they're talking about flowers and playing. and Sure. So you have these little peaks along the way. You can just make, it's called a comment. You're not giving... It's more of a homily than it is a lecture. Um, so I, I just throw that out to um, keep your eyes open and pay attention uh, when you have opportunity. And that those usually happen just in the warp and woof of life. The other larger issue is uh, public education. Where the heck did this come from? Familiar with it? No, I'm not. Well, it dates from about the 1850s. Uh, the, the, perhaps the most influential person, it was Horace Mann. And uh, Mann uh, wrote eloquently about advocating for a public option because uh, most education was based in the churches. Uh, and as you know, Tim Keller points out, and he's exactly right. He would say uh, the height of cultural influence in the evangelical church in America was in the 1830s. That's a longer conversation we have today, but uh, I would sum it up this way, listeners. The evangelical movement in America, which started roughly 1790s, 1800s, uh, hitched its wagon to the didactic enlightenment, which is really 
Greek thought, which again is not that material to this conversation other than didactic means teaching. So the, the idea was uh, like the Greeks, the body is unimportant, it's the mind. And so this uh, movement really took off like wildfire in the United States uh, for various reasons. But by, the 18, by 1850, it was, it was noted the uh, didactic enlightenment was already dying. Is being overrun a lot of it by neurobiology that this we have this whole subconscious and uh, we're not as rational as we think so within 15 years uh evangelicalism was already declining now they had in these churches many fine um, institutions of education but we are now coming through the industrial revolution and so man felt there was a better way to do education to create industrial workers for the industrial society. And that was the advent of public education, roughly the 1850s, mandatory, compulsory rather, uh, public education. Wow. You know, for example, Lincoln, as he uh, often said, and eschewed actually, uh, he said he only had one year of formal schooling Now we look at our public officials today and think that's, that seems to be the case with most of them today. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, but he was steeped in five sets of books and memorized vast portions. Uh, Shakespeare, Aesop's Fables, the Bible. Uh, this from a man who has no indication that he was necessarily a believer. But it was more of what he would have gotten had he uh, gone through a more of the uh, a liberal arts education. So this, so first of all, so we set the stage. Most education was private. It was elite in the in the French sense of the word, which means excellence. It was more tutorial. It was more what you see in the British model, uh, but it wasn't compulsory, and it had it wasn't given to the famous word today scaling. Which I'm coming to do, despise that word. Yeah. Uh, wasn't scalable for one reason. Can you guess? Chiefly for one reason. The what? The, the public education? The, at the time. private, the oh. liberal arts. I mean, I, w I would guess it's not scalable because the teaching style um, requires yes. a lot more. Uh, um, I'm thinking the student to teacher ratio. If if you're going to be if you're going to scale, you need more students and less teachers, and that's I imagine an important piece. Yeah, in fact, the old Greek fable you're probably familiar with. What was the word given to the teacher? It wasn't teacher. It was more of a mentor. Yeah. And um, so once you have mentors, see the difference in this model, and again, just just to sort of help us think through here we are in 2022 is the difference in this model is uh, you, you just don't get a certificate to teach. You have to embody something. Now I'm not saying everybody should become Roman Catholic, but you have to at least consider why does it take eight years on average to become a Catholic priest? Wow. I did not realize it uh, took that long. So you can go through a process of becoming a brother and then a priest is mm. because 
you have to embody this stuff. And in a moment, I'm going to tell you the uh, one of the first books that I believe I, I understand one of the first books you begin to read. But uh, you have to embody this stuff. So a lot of it is is uh, bodily formation, and a mentor in the same way. Now um, the mentor doesn't pull up the curriculum and go, "Now what are we talking about today?" Um, it's just it's like you go down in the morning and make your coffee. You don't go to an instruction book. Now, why am I? How are we making this coffee here today? Yeah, you embody it. So, because of that, uh, that model is not scalable. It is um, so you'd have all sorts of people who wouldn't would have would have had like Lincoln, right? just one formal year. Now, because of that, Horace Mann suggests the Prussian model. Whenever we say Prussian, we lose people because they're Prussian. Damn Russians! Where are they coming? <laughs> this. <laughs> What is a Prussian? I, I do not know. German. So it's a German model of education. Okay. And uh, so what do we know about Germans? I'm German. What do we know about Germans? I think Mercedes Benz. Yeah, I mean, very, very, very excellent. Oh, uh, yeah. High end. Um, yeah. Efficiency. Sure. Yeah. They're like the Swiss. And so you have to credit, I mean, Germany, uh, you get on the Autobahn, you don't go, geez, what are all the potholes here? What the, what is the deal? <laughs> fact, as you know, when the wall fell, uh, what's the economic engine? The driving one in the economic union has always been Germany. Mm. Germany, highly productive, hardworking, broad shoulders. That's why, you know, Carl Sandburg talked about Chicago this way. It was because a whole lot of Germans and Poles came to Chicago. And uh, they just work hard. So you have this, the model is a German model. And the German model is to create workers through the industrial society. And so public education will eventually develop specializations. And specializations, I think, contribute to one of the big problems in public education. The old joke is, so Pat, you could go all the way through the University of Maryland and learn how to read spreadsheets, but you've never read a lick of Shakespeare. Sure. That would be the uh, older model. So that's public education. Before we move on, question on that? No, I think I think it makes sense just to clarify, though. So the public at the onset of public education was really meant to be driven towards the industrial Side. That's right. Workers for the industrial society. We would then right. you know, update and say for the technological society. Okay. This, so it's a 170-year-old model. And a good book, if you're interested, uh, listeners, would be Matthew Crawford's book, um, Shop Class as Soul Craft. And what he'll talk about is um, what's happened in high schools um, is shop classes are going away replaced by computer classes. And uh, so the whole idea is to create uh, workers for the first industrial, then technological, now the information age. And hence, you see in most universities, I went to Western Michigan University, and the big growth, which they didn't have room for, which is off campus and it's near the freeway, is the whole STEM, um, science technology, booming uh, campus. And so you learn how you go to learn cloud code computers, yada, 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 which again, have a, a, an important role, but um, it's not what was understood originally with schooling. 
So having said all that, and because I know you've read the book, and listeners might be find this fascinating, what is the word school? Where does it actually come from? Since we're talking about education, which is generally um, understood to be schooling, which can take place inside a school, but it can also take place over the dinner table. I, I do not recall. Yeah. Well, this is one of the books that a good Catholic priest, you learn along the way. Joseph Pieper's book, P-I-E-P-E-R. Mm-hmm. And the book is called? Uh, leisure, the Basis of Culture. That's right. And where's that word leisure come from? It's uh, a word. Skol- is it Scola yeah. or something? Scola, which yeah. is the word school. For school. School yeah, yeah, yeah. was okay. supposed to be leisure. And that is deeply rooted in kind of a f- philosophical uh, understanding of, of leisure. I think it's easy to think leisure and think, oh, I'm just hanging out watching Netflix. <laughs> so just well, to clarify. Say, yeah, yeah, it's just <laughs> sipping, sipping uh, you know, mint juleps on the veranda, which is not. Now, you will see, by the way, in a number of many of the frescoes, say in the Vatican, the Greek school, and you see people are reclining on the steps. And yeah, the disciples but... reclined and did it out, you know, for a number of reasons they did that, but it all embodies receptivity just as a bride reclines with her husband in the nuptial union. Right. So, so it is, it's a dear, go ahead. I was, was going to say, thinking of uh, receptivity is a good word. Contemplation, mm-hmm. um, you know, we're not the, the observatory sciences, you know, we're not analyzing the, length of the stem of the rose we're appreciating the rose for what it is yes and and letting letting that beauty land upon us that's kind of what people gets at that's right and so again listeners of the we could go wide and deep and long into that we're not going to our point is school means leisure it means receptivity it's what's also uh, considered to be uh, what's called uh, wisdom that is handed down. And even the best in a medical practice and the young men and women I know going through med school, you first uh, step into a tradition which has been handed down to you. You don't start from scratch. There are things that have been learned. Yet the very, the ways I've seen that and when I was, when I've reflected upon my own education has been, you know, the amount of, the amount of, topics that I thought as a youngster, I, when am I ever going to need to know this? You know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's the skill without the context. And right. it's funny as I've jumped into woodworking or even other side projects where suddenly I'm using geometry, trigonometry, algebra. And it's like, man, I want to smack myself upside the head. Like wh- why didn't I pay more attention? Because all of those things are so applicable to, this broader context. It's, it's that, it's that, uh, I think that awareness that like, where does this thing fit in the, the broader lens that I think is what's missing. We're focused on the skills, which is probably the industrial, like you're talking about, but you don't have the, Oh, you know, um, when I'm actually building this, this piece of furniture, why is it so important that I understand, uh, right triangles? 
and That's I right. understand how this piece connects. So it's it's the contextual awareness that I think is part of what that leisurely element, the contemplation, the bigger picture, is is a hint towards. That's right. Well said. You take that to the bank, listeners. Take it to the <laughs> bank. And that's uh, so, yeah. So, yeah, I, I, you know, you take calculus and, you know, you have students going, well, okay. And you're just doing to get the grades you can get out. And um, so, again, this isn't a let's dump on public education. It, um, you do see, and this would be for all my friends who are deep into um, what I often hear mostly to be honest in the evangelical world is you start a ministry or this or that it's how can we scale it and so i kid okay let, if marriage is the portal into the mystery of the gospel how can you scale your kids well we have four well, well then eight would be great 16 would be even better hmm. 32 <laughs> in fact can we get it if you pop out three four babies at a time Scale it, baby, scale it. It doesn't work. There are uh, there might be some things to be gained from scaling, but I think it's oversold today. Ours, our work is a prophetic ministry, for example. We won't talk much about that, other than prophets are not scalable, and uh, <clears throat> that's just that just rubs a lot of people the wrong way because they think we ought to be scalable. Well, that you're really reflecting the Horace Mann school. Everybody is. We will compel them that it's compulsory and required. They will go through 12 or eight years, whatever number of years. So they yeah. come out workers. The problem, as you just said, is you can learn math, but you can't learn meaning. You can there learn. Is. That's it. So that's the, the challenge with a public school. And it's no fault of anyone necessarily. But I think that Christians ought to at least recognize what you what Pat said early on is the cultural mandate to make cultures is stitched into the soul of every single person on the planet, not just Christians. And if you don't make cultures small or large, nature abhors a vacuum. Someone else will. So as evangelicalism began to go into decline in the 1830s, in the 1840s, Horace Mann stepped into the breach. And there's no evidence Mann knew Jesus from his blue jeans. But he is someone who has stitched into his soul by God the cultural mandate. And he earned the cultural capital to then introduce a new model. And that new model then required also you had to scale up teachers. And then, um, as so often happens, you have to scale up administrators and the bureaucracy and... Uh, now, for better or worse, uh, here we are today, and um, we were at a um, friend's birthday party last night, celebrating his 70th, and um, very active in the community, and his wife, very active, and she was complaining about their county's uh, public school situation, and uh, she finally says, well, I'm going to run for the Board of Education, and she is. So in November, she's on the ballot. As we got closer to home, we saw her name and all these signs. I go, hey, we know her. Of course, she's running for Board of Education. Now, again, there's no evidence that these friends of ours know about Christ and what have you, but they just, they have stitched in their soul. 
the cultural mandate and and um, so there they are and a lot of theirs is because some of the nonsense that's been happening in um, public education down to for example the inordinate amount of time being spent in pronouns and what have you so having put all that in place i could make a soft argument for if people of faith are going to entirely abandon public schools then accept the results the consequences mm. in other words nature abhors a vacuum so, so someone's going to be directing this public schools somewhere and if we're not That's present right. yeah and the uh, the model that we've talked about in the past for making significant changes in a society or having some kind of influence is this idea of over dense overlapping networks so in many ways you're stepping away from a lot of those networks and it is a model that i understand that some people have often called the benedict option uh, kind of a withdrawal from society I'm more of the Babylonian option that um, actually get into the maelstrom because uh, and and I will draw your attention to um, if you're interested in, in um, an article by Ross Douthat D-O-U-T-H-A-T Ross is a deeply devoted follower of Christ and the, the article in the Atlantic is called The Truth About Harvard and it's a hoot to read but uh, here's, here's this whole point. He said, Harvard, very hard to get into. Once you're in, very hard to funk out. He goes, and he, he gives you an excerpt from paper, and you're, read, you're reading this excerpt and go, I have no idea what he's talking about. <laughs> when they went to a museum for Native American art, and you know, I think his next paragraph says, I have no idea to this day what I was saying. But I got an A. Because here's the truth about Harvard. You don't go for the education. You go for the network. And hence, he's an op-ed writer for the New York Times. Hmm. Now, again, if you're a Christian, you just kind of write that. Okay, ah, that's not the way God works. Blah blah. Okay, but the fact of the matter is, Christians should be wise to not only uh, human nature but human history, and that's part of the cultural mandate. And that's why I think we're not particularly savvy as to what does this cultural mandate mean. So that'd be the argument for public education. But but even that, I think that's interesting because to get into Harvard, you are far more likely to get into Harvard going through private education than you are that's right. public. Yeah. So, uh, but but you were saying that's your argument for public education. Well, because you know these the elite schools now are not trying to um, pose as elitism, and so they are looking for those who come through the public school uh, system. Also, they're trying to get a both hand and. Uh, so you have uh, it's, it's just it's just a way to understand that uh, if you know if you come all the way through and you and you go entirely Christian school all the way through, um, sure you're gonna you're gonna learn a lot and you're gonna gain a lot. I mean, you're probably gonna get a better better education in some way. If you're a sociologist, you're gonna see you're gonna get a less of an education in terms of how do you actually. Um, we're not going to talk about change the world. It's just love God and love your neighbor. That's a good way you put it, as you put it earlier. Love your neighbor. Um, loving neighbor 
in this town here is putting in place systems which are virtually non-existent that would help the vulnerable not be vulnerable. And that's, that takes more than uh, pantries. Because you and I aren't going to pantries. Right. And uh, so just be aware of that. In other words, the, the, the private, um, and also with homeschooling, have that advantage of they tend to be more systems or of an approach to education that reflects more of the liberal arts, which was instituted, came out of the church in the Middle Ages. Liberal meaning broad. And it was very much influenced by avodah, that everything, there's an, in, there, everything is in, uh, there's an integralness to it. There's a seamlessness to it. Nothing is integrated. Now, having said all that, you do have evangelical traditions where the curriculum is straight out of Horace Mann, practically, with a gloss of Bible over it, like a Bible class. And I think that has all sorts of challenges. But those are wildly popular in the U.S. And um, there are Christian schools who I would, I would, in many cases, I wish they didn't have Christian in the title or right. in the, because it simply is, it's public education with a Bible class. But it draws what we used to call Christians who are sanctuary seekers. They're looking to keep their kids uh, safe from all manner of evil. Well, listen, I've done some consulting for some of these schools, and uh, I would swear the rates of immorality are roughly equivalent to the public school. Yeah, yeah, I, I'm, I'm sure. I think I think that's, as a parent, you know, that's a bit of my challenge now is just thinking about. I think the Christian is too, it's too simplistic of a way to differentiate. It is that, like, what is the... Um, what is a more effective education for my kids? I think about that a lot. Like, man, how much time was was wasted in public education for me? Um, you know, a lot. Yeah, yeah, and and because of scaling, because there are inefficiencies to to doing that scaling, um, or I should say, there's ineffectiveness in pursuing efficiencies, and I get that. Um, so. I, I think the challenge for me is even how to assess private schools and there are Christian private schools and, and non-Christian private schools, but how to even assess that is, is challenging. Um, and so I think that's, that's where I feel a bit, I don't know, kind of lost. I don't, I don't know quite even where to get started um, in thinking about what, what is that model? Are there, are there even schools today that don't take the, the Horace Mann approach and, and do what you had just talked about where it's basically that approach and whether or not they slap a, uh, a Christian label on it or slap a high price tag on it. Like how do you, how do you discover a bit of a, a, a more, more effective mm -hmm. education model? Well, let's throw out a few resources as we close here. This, this helps listeners. First of all, um, you can Google the university of Austin, and um, so Pano is the president, uh, but brand new university. Um, they joked when people said, why Austin, Texas? And Pano said, it's good enough for Elon Musk. It's good enough for us. Hmm. And uh, 
but it is a return to what education ought to be in in Pano and the rest. But it's not being labeled as a Christian university. It is um, in the model of what was considered to be liberal arts, a seamlessness. So you, if you studied math, you know why and how this, you just understand the why behind it. Because uh, again, the um, liberal arts, to think widely or broadly, which is more a function of the right hemisphere, you had to have an education that thought wisely and broadly. The word liberal means broad, generous. And I like, I believe it's on the website for the University of Austin, but it says uh, we can't wait for the universities to reform themselves. Now, I like that. And there's times when I think, damn right. You, we, you're, it's a fool's, it's a fool's errand. But having said all that, I think you, at least if you're a Christian, acquaint yourself with the Prussian model in this regard. The writer is Neil Postman, just like Postman, P-O-S-T-M-A-N. He wrote some hilariously good books like uh, Educate, I mean, uh, uh, Entertaining Ourselves. Um, I forget the name. All to of a sudden, death or but, something like that. Yeah. But um, just Google Prussian model Neil Postman and you'll come upon his paper and you'll learn a lot and you'll go, oh my gosh, I never knew that. It's not a diatribe against, it's not a, a rant against public education. It's just Christians should be able to locate themselves in history and say, here we are in the Western world in the United States. Here we are right now. And here's how we got here. And hence, if we're going to be wise, here would be some ways to go about it. So I would Google that. I'd also Google C.S. Lewis machine. And that's uh, Lewis's famous lecture he gave in 1954 at Cambridge. But his point was, and he wasn't alone in this, the age of the machine, technology, he felt was just simply going to overrun us and actually be the abolition of man. Now that might sound like hyperbole, but when you read um, a summary even of that lecture or read it, you go, oh, I see what he's about. I mean, there could literally be a day coming when someone would live their entire life in a metaverse. Now, having said all that, then you can see why, especially since COVID, there, there are those who feel maybe the best way is to Take the entire thing into tech. Just make it all Zoom. Um, you know, we're not. I'm not here telling you here's the best way to do it. You just got to get some context if you're going to make some decisions. But I would uh, finally, when you come to the private education model and the various opportunities and homeschooling, see if you can have them. I'm, I, I bet you, you won't do this because it'll feel awkward. But a picture is worth a thousand words. I would ask if you could make it playful, say, hey, just draw a picture here of what's the big idea in this educational model you're, you're following and see what they draw. Yeah. If they draw an org chart, what's that tell you? <laughs> Go somewhere else. <laughs> well, again, it just depends because um, 
I always thought the first time I drove on the University of Maryland campus, but this is true of really any school I've ever driven on. It's an org chart. Okay, over there's science, over there's technology. Okay, there's literature. Who who studies literature? Uh, okay, there's there's biology. That got see it's a that's not liberal arts. If they drew a circle, so that the which denotes because a circle is without beginning or end, is that the this these disciplines here never really begin and end. They're all seamlessly connected. Now I grant you the original model for liberal arts had the queen science in the center. Queen science was? Theology. Theology. So if you don't, which means knowledge of God. So if you don't have knowledge of God, you don't have knowledge of code. You don't have knowledge of technology. You don't have knowledge and that you know that that model flies in the face of most most people think i know all about the cloud i could know all about it without god well liberal arts would say no you know you can't because you don't know why you don't know how to think about it you know what to think about it and how to use it that's lewis's point in his concern about the machine you can learn how to utilize all of this for various ends, but you don't know why, you don't know what you ought to do with it. You just know if it can be done, let's do it. So I would, you know, Neil Postman, C.S. Lewis, um, and, and, and I think if, uh, when that, as you consider these options, you just go, what, what's gonna be most beneficial to my kids 20 years out? And if you can, as a parent, ask that question and go, which option is going to do that? Now, some people simply can't afford anything but public. And, uh, you know, I was, Kathy and I, we didn't make much money, and our kids all went to the public schools. Um, but we also felt what happened at home was more influential in the long run than. Uh, what happened in school both were important but we felt also if you have a robust family life or give you know make a stab at it then we would have you know dinner table as i've watched some of the kids do hey what happened in school today and da, 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 da. you know as we know the average kid who goes to public school when he walks out the door he or she leaves it all behind the parents don't ask questions other than how is school good good Hmm. That's that's helpful. Another approach. Yeah. You get any option. Listen, I see them code are so-called Christian schools and come out little devils. And hmm. I see them go to public schools and really flourish. There has to be, in my opinion, what's behind it all are parents who are not uh, sacred, secular, uh, dichotomous people. They're not people who you know, Christian good, secular bad. They're thoughtful Christians who know how to draw out from their kids because they have capital, good questions that make um, make for a better educational experience. 